Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, February 25th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll begin with the cover story. Leaders reflect. Why is philanthropy important to our community? Editor's note. In our 2021 Pillars of Philanthropy publication, we asked 10 philanthropy leaders to write about what they've learned from these challenging times. What would they have told themselves in December of 2019 that would help prepare them for what was to come in 2020 and 2021? What would they have told themselves about how to lead their teams? How would they have prepared to come up with entirely new programs to continue fulfilling their missions through uncertain times? How would they think differently about advancing equity issues? This is one letter. See the other nine at PillarsBR.com. From the pen of Christy Naus, President, Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines. Dear Christy, you're someone who thinks ahead and likes to be prepared. Making lists, shopping ahead, buying in bulk, having a freezer full of meals. You take advantage of regular health exams and get your teeth cleaned when you're supposed to. And at work, you've got that disaster plan ready to go and kept in a safe space in your home office. You're ready for anything, right? Well, my naive friend, you can guess again. Never in your wildest dreams did you imagine you'd have to prepare for a global pandemic. Fasten your seatbelt and get ready to rewrite your disaster plan. Here are a few thoughts to help you prepare for what is to come. Culture counts. While you've been diligently making sure you're ready for the unexpected, there is one thing you'll find to pay off in spades. Over the years, you've put intention on building the culture of your team, strengthening the cultural fabric that weaves you all together and ties you tightly to your mission. You've put intention into knowing how your team members like to be appreciated, truly understanding what makes them feel valued. You've invested in understanding one another's strengths and building a strength-focused culture that lifts one another up. You've taken time to understand your purpose and the purpose of each member of your team and, better yet, how purpose collectively brings the Community Foundation's mission to life. You've taken time to understand emotional intelligence, knowing what you bring to the table and how to bring out the best in others by truly listening and seeking to understand. Your team has worked hard over the years, not just to succeed, but to thrive. And boy, will that pay off as you all deal with everything the pandemic will throw your way. And it's not just the internal culture that counts in times like those that lie ahead. The trusting relationships you've built with other community leaders are critical when a crisis hits. You will be able to come around one another so you can mobilize quickly and come around the community. The culture you've built as a community is critical as you handle disasters quickly, successfully, and with mutual trust, respect, and candor. 
Trust your teammates. A time of crisis when every hour counts is not the time to micromanage. You've got an amazing team. Share an inspiring vision, make sure roles are clear, and get out of the way. They know what they need to do. They're experts in their respective roles. Make sure they have what they need and let them get to work. So much more will get accomplished and likely 10 times better than you'd have done it. Focus where you need to focus and let them do the same. And don't forget to tell them, show them, and remind them how much you value them. They're all a piece of the puzzle that makes your mission complete. Seek to understand. You'll learn that what makes a pandemic different from the flood or tornado recovery efforts the Community Foundation has served in the past is that it affects everyone. No one is given a pass on this one, and no one experiences crisis in the same way. The level, the level of stress is incomparable. People not only are worried about their own health and the health of their loved ones, but they are also isolated. They are worried about their businesses, their employees, and their livelihood. By seeking to understand and giving time and space to process and feel heard, you'll be giving grace and compassion. Your view is not the view of the next person, so don't make assumptions and listen far more than you speak. Communicate more often, more clearly, and more personally than you think you need to. They need it, and they'll appreciate it. Take time. You'll spend more time in front of your computer than you can imagine. There's this thing called Zoom, and you'll come to know it well. The meetings and the community needs will seem endless, but you'll find that if you can break away for a walk, to take a breath, or to listen to music or podcasts, the creativity and ideas will flow. Your brain will need a break, and if you take time away, you'll be amazed at the ideas, the strategy, and the energy that will flow. Be kind to yourself so you can be your best for the community. And finally, soak in the time you'll have with your family. Make time to call your loved ones who are isolated. Take advantage of virtual happy hours with friends. Try new recipes. Watch good movies. Exercise. Clean out closets and files. Go hiking. And most importantly, wear your mask and get your vaccine. You'll come out on the other side. Changed and yet the same, but mostly grateful. Love me. Again, you can read letters from nine other nonprofit leaders at Pillars B R. That's P I L L A R S B R dot com. Continuing this story, 10 leaders answer why is philanthropy important to our community? From Christy Naus, president of the Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines. Philanthropy is the love of mankind. Never has that love been more needed, more displayed, or more critical. Iowans are generous. We show the love. And our nonprofit sector, make that 
for impact sex sector needs philanthropic support now more than ever to continue the critical impact they have on our community. As we face the long road of recovery, I can say with confidence that our for impact sector will be there to lead the way, but they cannot do it alone. Giving back is core to the Iowa culture. As we feel called to help, supporting our nonprofit for impact organizations is a great place to start. Janice Lane Schrader, CEO of Children and Families of Iowa says, when I think about the importance of philanthropy, I think about the founders of Children and Families of Iowa, a small group of ministers, educators, and community stakeholders who formed an association called the Iowa Education Aid Association. The purpose of the association was to place homeless Iowa children in childless homes. That vision, created some 133 years ago, was the seed that was cultivated and nurtured through philanthropy. Throughout the years, people have engaged in specific causes due to personal experiences or community need. Philanthropy provides a path for everyone to participate in developing a solution to an issue or a problem. It's about being the difference. I believe that philanthropy strengthens the community and the families that reside within the community. It also fills the funding gap where state and federal budgets fall short. From Eric Burmeister, Executive Director, Polk County Housing Trust Fund. Philanthropy is important because it is simple. As Polk County Housing Trust Fund discovered in its Justice Center project, philanthropists, especially individuals, have little or no bureaucracy. Individual donors have no committees, they have no requirements for reports, and they have no rules that hamper delivery to folks in need. They are focused on the ends, not the means. Philanthropists permit quick and creative responses to communities in emergencies. From Ryan Crane, Director of Philanthropy at the Des Moines Playhouse. The term philanthropy is derived from two Greek words, phylos, meaning love, and anthropos, meaning humankind. Philanthropists, therefore, are people looking to make a difference in the world. And we needed them more than ever in 2020. For many arts and culture organizations, philanthropists acted selflessly. Sometimes there were no tickets to buy, and no shows to attend. Sometimes the events were experimental or scaled back. In amounts big and small, philanthropists expressed their love for their favorite venues, nonprofits, and institutions. It is not an exaggeration to say the arts and culture sector would not have survived intact without philanthropists. Renee Miller, Chief Community Impact Officer of the United Way of Central Iowa, says, Philanthropy is community. It brings everyone together in the interest of making where we live a better place for each of us. Philanthropy is a tangible outlet of our collective expression of humanity, where individuals share their money, strengths, 
talents, skills, voices, and heart to lift up and lean into each other. When we share, we bond for a greater good. And it's in the smallest acts of sharing, from a place of kindness, where we see immeasurable impact. Trey Wade, president and CEO of Every Step, says, Philanthropy is the steadfast, compassionate machine that powers our community. When philanthropy is strong, our neighborhoods become stronger. Every step, like many local nonprofits, relies on support from our community in order to build our community. Fortunately, there is a long-standing spirit of giving in Central Iowa. The donations of time and money nonprofits receive help them address vital and otherwise unmet health care and support needs, empower at-risk populations, grow healthy families, strengthen community resources, and enrich our local culture. Philanthropy is what makes a community grow from good to great. Buffy Jamison, tri-chair of the Iowa Queer Communities of Color Coalition, says, Philanthropy is a pastime used to make a public statement about how much you, your family, or your organization cares about the community. It's taught to youths as a way of instilling communal values and a sense of gratitude for what they have. This sounds good, but it teaches folks to ignore the roots of societal inequities in favor of offering temporary relief from the symptoms of these root problems. We need to retire the practice of philanthropy and shift toward making sizable, long-term investments in marginalized communities and initiatives seeking to create structural changes that would render philanthropy unnecessary. Christine Herr, Executive Director of Art Force Iowa. Quote, Philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. End quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Ms. Herr says, Philanthropy rooted in justice is important to our community because it's critical to understand and acknowledge how past realities have forced communities into oppressive situations where philanthropy is needed. Justice-centered philanthropy highlights equitable practices that strengthen communities to flourish. Giving is admirable and supports the wellness of everyone living in the community. Anne Shemurdla, President and CEO of Blank Park Zoo. Whether it is a cultural or human services organization, almost everyone is affected in a positive manner by a nonprofit. Thriving communities have strong nonprofit organizations that increase the quality of life for those who live, work, and visit. It is not possible to have a healthy nonprofit without a group of philanthropic individuals who believe in and support a nonprofit's mission. To sum it up, a healthy community relies on thriving nonprofits, which rely on a strong group of donors. And Dawn Martinez Oropesa, Executive Director Al Exido, wrote, 
Systems historically are woven into the very foundation of American culture, society, and laws that elevate dominant social groups. This has limited the opportunities and financial stability of non-dominant groups and organizations. Philanthropy provides opportunities of inclusion and equality for those not benefiting from inherent power or privilege. Philanthropy has the power to embrace and engage everyone, which ultimately strengthens the entire community. Our next story, A Closer Look. Meet a leader you should know. Mary Hunter, President and CEO, Goodwill of Central Iowa. By Joe Gardiaz. For the past 15 months, Mary Hunter has used a large whiteboard in her office as an evolving outline of the turnaround strategy that she has led as President and CEO of Goodwill of Central Iowa. The Johnston-based nonprofit saw some of its darkest days during the initial peak of the pandemic as she was coming on board in November 2020 with 75% of the staff at that time furloughed and two of its retail stores permanently closing. Over the past year, Hunter has worked to take the organization back to the basics of fulfilling its mission of helping people with barriers to employment to be trained and find jobs. In July, Goodwill of Central Iowa raised its starting wage for employees to $15 an hour as part of a cultural revamp for the organization. Additionally, Hunter is determined that Goodwill of Central Iowa will more effectively reach out to the nonprofit and business communities to, quote, tell people why, why we're here, end quote, and to engage in new partnerships. Before joining Goodwill, Hunter, for 12 years, held several executive roles with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation at both the local and national levels. She also spent a large portion of her professional career with Hy-Vee Incorporated, where she was assistant vice president of real estate during the company's peak expansion period. She has served as commissioner for the Iowa Alcoholic Beverages Division. She currently serves on the state's consumer advisory panel and is a member of the Clive Public Arts Commission. At Goodwill of Central Iowa, Hunter fills a role left vacant after the previous president and CEO, Jack Norris, stepped down to take another position in 2020. How was the organization doing when you started, and how have things progressed in your first year? When I arrived in November 2020, two stores had been closed permanently, the leadership team was down to four people, and we were down to about 100 total employees with 14 retail stores. So when I started, I was working with the leadership team and the board chair, trying to figure out where to start. I started looking at revenue, looking at culture, looking at mission, just diving in and learning the organization. So we created a mission plan based off of those three pillars, people, mission, and revenue. At that time, we didn't have a mission department. They were just about all let go. We had less than a handful of people that were coaching and trying to keep our skills training program up and running. Everybody was just doing the best they could with what they had. So there was very little mission at that when I arrived. 
So then we started thinking about how we're going to do this. And we said, we're just going to go back to the basics. We're going to do what we do best. We're really good at skills training. That's the mission that we need to bring back. We're really good at placing people into jobs and then coaching them and helping them be successful in their roles. We're going to keep doing that. That's our lane right now. It sounds like COVID's impact has been far worse than any previous recession then. To my knowledge, there's nothing that has impacted us the way COVID has because we're so public facing. The doors were closed. And then there are the protocols of social distancing and cleaning, and our dressing rooms aren't open yet. So we continue to work in an environment that has certainly changed, and it's more than financial. It hit us financially, absolutely, but COVID is more than financial. It's changed the way we interact. In December 2021, more than a year after I started, we had our first in-person board meeting. How has the strategic plan been progressing? We took a pretty bold step in July when we announced we were increasing our wages to $15 an hour, a living wage. It helped not just the people we currently had employed, but also helped us get people in the door to hire. Culturally, I have a philosophy of empowering people to make decisions. So decisions are now being made at the very lowest level they can be. It's really just empowering people to do their jobs, and we've created an environment of love, kindness, and respect. So we're seeing a big shift in culture. 75% of our operations is a warehouse environment where people are processing and producing. Only 25% of it is a retail environment. I think that before I worked here, I never would have guessed that. What's ahead this year? We are going to go through what is called a DGR, which means Donated Goods Retail Optimization Process. We're going to change how we process those donated goods in our back rooms and create some efficiencies and streamline it to create excitement in how we put it out onto the sales floor. Most of our customers are resellers. They're looking for treasures to put online and resell. So how quickly we get those items out to the sales floor is going to make a huge difference. So the process change that we're making is that carts of new goods or inventory are going out to the sales floor every 15 minutes. It's going to create a buzz and an excitement, not just for our employees, but for our customers as well. So we have 13 stores that over 12 or 13 months, we're going to try to do one a month. Tell me about how Goodwill's training center works. Do you train for employers as well as for your stores? It's a little of both. We get referrals to our skills training program. We have two training centers up and running right now. Most of our retail skills training participants will be placed into a retail setting, whether that's a grocery store or some other sort of retail. And we have our warehouse logistics training where they get certified in how to use a forklift, OSHA 10 certification, how to work with chemicals and different things. 
so they will most likely be placed in big box store or warehouses. Those people who go through our skills training program are referred to us by the Department of Veterans Affairs, by Polk County Health, Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Services, etc. Once they're placed into employment, we coach them and help them to be successful. We want to place as many of those people in our operation as we possibly can. A part of the mission that's back up and running since being closed due to the pandemic is adult day habilitation. It's for adults that may or may not ever be able to be employed, but it's an opportunity for them to socialize, learn how to buy a bus pass, learn how to do laundry through a life skills training program. So that's up and running on the south side, which has been phenomenal. And we're going to open up a second location here in our headquarters. So I'm really excited that we'll have those services in two locations. How is the current workforce shortage affecting Goodwill? It is absolutely impacting us. Before we made the decision to go to $15 an hour, we had 87 openings in our retail stores. That would have been at the end of July. By December, we were down to 37 openings. So that absolutely made a positive impact. We measure how successful that decision is by how much we're producing and selling. It's how many donated goods we're processing and getting that inventory onto the sales floor so that sales are being made. That's what makes the retail cog go round. It's not all about wages. We do employee engagement surveys. We're boots on the ground asking our employees, what is it that you need? How can we retain you? How can we recruit your friends? One of the things we used to say is that to work for us part-time, you had to commit to at least 20 hours a week. That's out the door. We have to be more flexible. You might only be available to work Saturdays from 8 to noon. If you can hammer out and produce stuff for four hours on a Saturday morning, yes, you can have a job. We are definitely responding to the workforce. We are working on a model of scheduling people based on flow of donations. Because that's the wheel. The donations come in the door, we process, we restock, we sell. So we have to change how we're thinking. And honestly, we need to work with our community to get more donations. Those are the donations that make it go round. Beyond donations, will Goodwill's fundraising approach change? The focus on fundraising will focus on grants, foundations, and partnerships. We don't really have any partnerships going with any of our corporate community citizens here. We have such philanthropic, amazing corporate partners that we should and could be doing some more partnership work with. What does that look like? I don't know exactly, but we need to start having those conversations with those partners. We're going to start working on helping people understand why goodwill exists and working it back from the core out. We exist to help people with barriers find employment. How we help people find employment is helping with training and job coaching. What we do is sell donated goods to fund our skills training program. And so really helping our community understand that we exist to help people find employment. We don't exist to have stores. 
How did your leadership philosophy of empowering people develop? I have been blessed to have an amazing, amazing career. With many opportunities, I have reported to different management styles, and I've learned what I like and don't like, what works well and what doesn't. I know I do not like to be micromanaged. As we're hiring new people, I make it really, really clear I'm not a micromanager. If you need that, this is not going to be a good fit. You won't succeed, and I'll be frustrated. You'll be frustrated. I lead with love. I expect all of my leaders to lead with love. And I expect everybody to treat everybody with love, kindness, and respect. And I tell them it's not negotiable. What are some favorite books or movies? When people ask me this question, there are two books I always say. One is A Man Called Of. I don't know who wrote it. Note, it's Frederick Backman. And the other one is Five Presidents by Clint Hill. They're two entirely different books, but they're my favorites. And a great kids book that I've bought for all my nieces and nephews is Frindle. What are your hobbies? I love being outdoors. I love cooking. That's probably my favorite. My kitchen is my happy place. But we're doing this thing with our best friends. It's what we call our 99-county tour, and it kind of started with COVID. It started with, let's go to all 99 counties and see the courthouse. And then we said, well, let's have a beer and let's have ice cream. Let's just do something. My girlfriend was able to find this artwork with the state and all 99 counties outlined. And so we're coloring them in for depending on what year we went. And on the back, we're writing what we did. We're about a quarter of the way through. It's a blast. Mary Hunter at a glance. Hometown, born in Albia, raised in Ankeny, age 57. Education, bachelor's degree, business management and marketing, Drake University. Family, husband, Peter, two grown children, Emily and Nathan, who are each married. Contact, mary.hunter at dmgoodwill.org phone 515-265-5323 extension 279 you're listening to the reading of the business record for friday february 25th 2022 on iris the iowa radio reading information service for the blind The Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Five takeaways from our power breakfast on the future of downtown. In our 2021 leaders survey, 73% of respondents said they agreed that downtown small businesses and commercial real estate will suffer if most businesses continue offering remote working to their employees post-pandemic and another 13% were unsure about the effects. Between changing customer demand and issues with staffing, downtown small businesses are being challenged while office vacancies continue to be higher than they were pre-pandemic. 
Yet both staple and new events and attractions are continuing on with fervor. Thursday's Power Breakfast focused on solutions to keep downtown thriving and what the new vision plan might include. Panelists included Tiffany Toshek, Chief, Op- Chief Operations Officer, Greater Des Moines Partnership, Stacy Bennett, Executive Director, Des Moines Downtown Chamber, Marcus Ashworth, Entrepreneur, Distiller, and Developer in Des Moines, Aaron Olson Douglas, Director, Development Services, City of Des Moines, and TJ Jacobs, Vice President, CBRE Hubble Commercial. Here's what our reporters took away from the discussion. Making downtown a location of choice. One of the lasting effects of the pandemic has been the increase in daily decision-making practices. Do I dine out at a busy restaurant while the Omicron variant is still prevalent? Do I work from home today or go into the office? The theme of choice was first introduced into the discussion by Olson Douglas, but was carried on throughout the duration of the conversation. Pre-pandemic, Olson Douglas said, people would cruise through their days on autopilot, coming downtown in the morning into work before leaving in the afternoon to pick up their kids, because that's the way it had always been. Now, those decisions of what you choose to do throughout the day and when and where you do them are front of mind. Toshek followed up later in the discussion by pointing out the need for employers to recognize that the core of the future of work is choice. If employers truly want their employees back in person and full-time, what can they do to make that enticing? We'll need to continue as employers to be flexible. We need to continue to put an emphasis on benefits, salaries, Toshik said. Fostering Entrepreneurship and Synergy The discussion made clear that the fundamentals of operation and strategy for downtown businesses are changing, and panelists imagined how entrepreneurs and small business owners will fit into that landscape moving forward. Ashworth said, having synergy of the businesses at center at 6th has been a focus for the development, and he suggested a similar strategy could be helpful for developing synergy among downtown businesses at large particularly if the area is positioned to have experiential-based businesses that can attract people in a way online businesses can't. Catherine Harrington, president and CEO of the West Des Moines Chamber of Commerce, volunteered the first question from the audience, asking if vacant real estate downtown could serve as spaces for business incubators to foster more entrepreneurship. As more Americans are pursuing entrepreneurial ventures, Panelists said ideas like that need to be part of Des Moines' plan for downtown business development. Olson Douglas said Des Moines is well-positioned to advance entrepreneurship because it's both large enough to, quote, do some really complex and interesting things, end quote, but small enough that people who can help are accessible. She and Ashworth both noted that another part of the equation is financial resources and support to guide entrepreneurs to their first and next steps. Measuring Downtown's Success The panelists were asked what indicators they are watching that signals downtown is rebounding from the economic struggles caused by the pandemic. 
The answer provided by Jacobs was direct. It's looking at downtown parking garages and seeing cars in them. It's seeing traffic on Interstate Highway 235. These are just some very anecdotal evidence of vibrancy, in my opinion. Jacobs said he's also optimistic about the future of downtown because of the interest in it from people who live in other states. Right now, I'm working with 10 different groups that are out of state and interested in investing or developing downtown, he said. These folks are coming out of the Des Moines airport and saying, we're going to invest here. It's interesting that an out-of-state investor or developer is betting on downtown, and we are all kind of wondering, well, should we? Optimism and Resilience Olson Douglas said Des Moines has done a good job of building quality buildings. We have vacancy space. It's quality space around downtown. I really feel confident that knowing that we do have good space, we can figure out these subtenancy sorts of issues. We can work together and figure out some of those things. It's too important not to. Olson Douglas said it's not a unique situation to Des Moines and said downtowns across the country are trying to figure out how to solve the commercial vacancy issue. The city also converted a lot of the Class C office space to residential, taking it out of the commercial market. But we added a level of vibrancy we haven't seen in downtown ever, she said. So we really have positioned ourselves well. She said, there are real reasons for optimism for downtown, and I think there is a resiliency we have all collectively accomplished through the past two years because of the groundwork we've laid over the last couple of decades. She cautioned that things could get worse before they get better, but said, we need to find those solutions. We need to cultivate business expansions. We need to find those consolidations, and we really need to work hard to fill that office space. Upcoming downtown study highlights importance of cultural draws. Toshek dropped a few nuggets from a soon-to-be-released study focused on downtown workforce and office occupancy trends that the partnership has been working on with Des Moines-based consulting firm Baton Global. We interviewed over 5,100 participants in this study, asking them what do they need? How do they feel, not only about downtown, of course, but also what do they need to do their best work? While they're still digging through the data, one of the takeaways Toshek shared centered on the panel's recurring theme of choice. Employers will need to continue to put an emphasis on benefits and salary, she said. But really, when we think about the future of work, it's about choice. And as an employer, figuring out ways to make it so enticing to be in the office and around your colleagues. Just as employers used to spend time planning meaningful off-site meetings and retreats for workers, they now should be thinking about flipping that around to create moments of connection for their teams at the office, she said. Another key takeaway that we're really excited about is that the number one draw for people to come downtown is cultural. People want fun stuff to do. And you know what? We've got a lot of that, Toshek said, listing some big projects like the newly opened Lords and Skate Park 
the planned soccer stadium, and the ICON water trails projects as examples. A majority of survey participants, 86%, said they would come downtown even more if we continue to invest in our downtown and make more cool stuff happen, she said. The DSM Workforce Trends and Occupancy Study, which the partnership expects to release early next month, is a separate but related research effort from the Downtown DSM Future Forward Study, which is expected to come out sometime this spring, partnership spokesperson Courtney Shaw told me. Our next story, DMAX Live Gears Up for Year 13 by Sarah Bogarts. It's time again to mark the calendar for Des Moines Area Community College's Salive Celebrate Innovation Live event. The two-day speaker series titled Go Boldly is heading into its 13th year of convening a group of notable individuals to inspire audiences. This year's event is scheduled for March 9th to 10th and speakers include a stunt actor, an underwater photojournalist, a glassblower, and a panel on the future of space. DMAC West Campus in West Des Moines will host again with live streaming opportunities available. More information and the schedule are available at dmac.edu forward slash C-I-W-E-E-K. Ahead of the event, the business record asked two of the speakers, Brian Seeley, an ethical hacker and public speaker, and Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, to share their stories. Hacking for Good Brian Seeley's career as an ethical hacker, speaker, and author on cybersecurity has been built on making sure people and larger institutions understand what they need to know about technology and cybersecurity to navigate the rapidly changing digital era and protect themselves, others, and their businesses. Seeley does public speaking events for everyone from industry professionals to children to people without a technology background incorporating comedy and making the topic relatable and accessible so they can better understand what to watch out for. Seeley has moved around frequently. He grew up in Japan, except for a three-month stint in 10th grade attending Gilbert High School in Gilbert, Iowa. Joined the Defense Language Institute in California, providing members of the Marine Corps culturally-based foreign language education, and worked with contractors in Iraq for two years before returning to the West Coast. He said technology has been a constant interest, as he was fixing computers and printers for people as early as 12 years old. Back in the U.S., he worked for a company that was manipulating map data on Google Maps, putting up fake businesses with phone numbers that all directed to the same person, and got the fake businesses prioritized on the app, reducing visibility for other area small businesses. People figured out how to do this. They did it on a mass scale, and it devastated, and it still continues to harm local businesses all over, he said. He decided to respond by doing the same thing as these hackers, but with the goal of calling attention to the exploitation. 
First, he changed the names of prominent places to bizarre and funny names, which turned only a few heads, so he thought about what would get more attention. He landed on manipulating the locations and phone numbers of the FBI and Secret Service without permission. Google Maps still showed the FBI and Secret Service in their same locations, and those who called either headquarters got through, but Seeley was able to hear and record every incoming call. He avoided jail time for the wiretap by immediately disclosing to the FBI and Secret Service what he had done and explaining his reasoning. He said it took some convincing for officials to believe him, but ultimately they determined it wasn't done with criminal intent. A lack of malicious intent is key to defining ethical hacking, but what else separates legal and illegal hacking? Easy. Paperwork, Seeley said. Ethical hackers won't break into something without consent. You need permission to use someone else's credentials or gain access to a computer system that is not yours. Criminals won't adhere to those rules. Being ahead of the game is a key trait found in many ethical hackers, Seeley said. A lot of people in the ethical hacking space are problem solvers, and they don't give up easily and they don't accept no or the default, he said. Like a class clown who's ahead in terms of being able to understand everything, but they're bored so they're trying to keep themselves interested. They're the kids who are not just accepting that things are the way they are. They're saying, oh, I can go change my grades. Sometimes it's malicious like that, but there is definitely a use for people who think outside the box and who don't subscribe to all the normal conventions. Journey Growing into Entrepreneurship The journey that I went on is similar to the journey that I see in a lot of entrepreneurs, said Jason Pfeiffer which is that they start with one thing, thinking they're providing value in one kind of way, and then they face this choice at some point where they see that if they would be willing to transform themselves and what they do, there's even just a bigger opportunity in front of them than they thought in the first place. Jason Pfeiffer's path to being an entrepreneur did not start until he joined Entrepreneur Magazine in 2015 as second-in-command to the then-chief editor-in-chief, but since he took over the editor-in-chief role in 2016, he has become one in more than one way. His background was in journalism, first as a newspaper reporter and freelance writer, and then as an editor at several magazines, including Men's Health, Fast Company, and Maxim. Entrepreneur was an entirely different experience. Pfeiffer said it was the first role that asked him to help shape and change the company's product. His first year as editor-in-chief was spent heads down, working on redefining and focusing the print magazine. The main challenge was creating a product that spoke to all kinds of entrepreneurs, which he said has grown to encompass a lot of people, given how the definition of the word has changed in recent years. When Pfeiffer looked up at the end of that year, he had gone through many of the same processes and experiences of an entrepreneur, but he immediately shifted focus to the next step of getting to know the magazine's audience more personally. 
Conversations with entrepreneurs made him think that maybe he should be thinking differently, or rather, vertically. Pfeiffer said, Entrepreneurs don't just do a thing. Everything they do stacks on top of each other. So all that effort is driving towards one purpose, and that's not how I had grown up to think. I grew up to think really in what I've now realized is a kind of horizontal thinking. Do one thing, then move on to the next thing, then move on to the next thing. It never stacks upon something. It never builds. Entrepreneurs just don't think like that, he said. Pfeiffer started his own media company, Hey Pfeiffer Productions, and added titles like podcast host, public speaker, and author to his repertoire. The new ventures likely wouldn't have happened if he hadn't joined Entrepreneur, he said. With the boost of interest in entrepreneurship coming out of the pandemic and as people leave corporate jobs, Pfeiffer said it's critical that enterprise companies begin to consider structuring their businesses to welcome entrepreneurial thinkers. What you will find is that if you are a true intrapreneurial company, you will attract entrepreneurial thinkers and they will want to have a real meaningful impact in the company, he said. They're not people who just plug into something and frankly, they might want to work at your company and also, just like me, have their own thing on the outside. That used to be less tolerated years ago, and I'm finding that there is more and more tolerance for it now, and not just tolerance, but encouragement of it. Our next story, Developer Buys Land for Steakhouse, Apartment Project in West Des Moines, by Kathy A. Bolton. A Carmel, Indiana development group has purchased about nine acres in West Des Moines on which a development that includes a popular fine dining steakhouse and high-end multifamily apartment units are planned. The 20 to $30 million commercial and residential development called Village on Jordan Creek is planned on the southwest corner of Ashworth Road and Jordan Creek Parkway. CRG Residential, the Indiana Development Group, and Great Lakes Capital, a real estate private equity firm headquartered in South Bend, Indiana, plan to construct a multi-level building that wraps around a parking garage, pool, and courtyard. The structure is expected to include a New Orleans-based chain, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and 199 multifamily units. The West Des Moines City Council approved the project's site plan last November. Demolition and removal permits have been issued for the properties by the City of West Des Moines. One parcel located at 970 Jordan Creek Parkway has not yet been acquired by the development company, according to county real estate records. The group is also purchasing a parcel owned by the city. A city official said staff members are reviewing reviewing building permit applications and site improvements. Once the reviews are completed, the remaining parcels of land are purchased and easements and other agreements are filed with Dallas County. The building permit can be issued, the official said. From the Elbert Files by Dave Elbert, business record columnist, Cornography and Ethanol. A recent blog by University of Iowa hydrologist Christopher S. Jones is titled, Iowa is Addicted to Cornography. 
The blog appeared days before the National Academy of Sciences published a new study that shows ethanol is not a clean fuel. The study said, quote, production of corn-based ethanol in the United States has failed to meet greenhouse gas emission targets and negatively affected water quality, land used for conservation, and other ecosystems. But Jones already knew that. He wrote that ethanol manufacturing, quote, comes at a high environmental cost, soil erosion, nutrient pollution, degraded streams, lakes, and drinking water, habitat loss, end quote. Clearly, Jones is not a fan of ethanol. Who among us would be if we fully understood the cost of producing the fuel and that those same resources could be put to better use? Ethanol, Jones wrote, has turned farmers into single-minded producers who are oblivious to the cost to Iowa's soil and water quality. Ethanol, he continued, quote, is causing Iowa politicians, many of whom identify as farmers, to start suggesting really, really stupid stuff, such as forcing all filling stations in Iowa to provide E15, gasoline blended with ethanol at an 85 to 15 ratio, above the typical 90-10 blend, end quote. The purpose of the proposed legislation is to boost ethanol sales by requiring Iowa filling stations to sell fuels with higher concentrations of corn-based alcohol. It's a bad idea with bipartisan support, Jones noted. He wrote, Lest you think I'm being partisan here, there are many moronic Democrats in the legislature only too eager for vote, to vote for this. What really irritates the UI scientists is the futility of ethanol at this point in the fuel's life cycle. Grain alcohol has been used as fuel since the invention of the automobile, although it fell out of favor in the early 1900s when producers discovered they could refine oil into gasoline that delivers far more energy. Consumers gave grain-based fuels a second try after the Arab oil embargoes of the 1970s cut into supplies and produced long lines at gas pumps. In any case, both gasoline and ethanol are being overtaken by electric power as a more environmentally friendly source of power for cars and trucks. Electric vehicles were slow to catch on, but are now cutting into the U.S. market with demand expected to grow. Rather than continuing to prop up a failing market, Jones suggests Iowa farmers get into the electricity game with solar panels. He noted that an acre of corn converted to ethanol produces 20 million BTUs of energy, but explained that the math behind a 21-acre solar farm near Dubuque is more impressive. The solar farm produces 200,000 kilowatt hours of energy per acre per year, which multiplied by 3,412 kilowatt hours per BTU amounts to 682 million BTUs per acre. In other words, the solar farm produces more than 34 times as much energy as a field of corn used to make ethanol. Jones concluded with a suggestion for older Iowa farmers. Instead of sitting around, quote, reading pornography put out by enablers that tell them they are victims of some grand conspiracy, end quote, 
He said farmers should make way for, quote, young and creative people that want to farm and who want to make Iowa a better and cleaner place, end quote. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, February 25th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.